2: Just a heads up, this episode contains some strong language. It was one of those days where you remember exactly where you were. On July 2nd, 2020, I was in Charleston, South Carolina, on vacation. I'd been out for drinks the night before, and I was feeling pretty dead. I was walking my dog, Pancetta, when I got this text message that nearly made me drop the leash. It's happening, the message said. This was from my colleague, Emily Saul, who used to be a court reporter for the New York Post. She'd got a tip-off from a source at the Southern District of New York that she should rush to the courthouse. They were putting together an impromptu press conference at noon, and it was going to be big. She didn't know what was happening for sure, but I had a feeling. And then it happened. FBI agents arrested Ghislaine Maxwell nearly one year to the day after Epstein was arrested.
3: Today, we announced charges against Ghislaine Maxwell for helping Jeffrey Epstein sexually exploit and abuse multiple minor girls from the period of 1994 through
2: 1997. Ghislaine Maxwell, of course, denies these accusations. This development felt so extraordinary because up until that morning, Ghislaine Maxwell was MIA. You see, I just finished making another podcast, Season 2 of Broken, where I followed many of the victims of Jeffrey Epstein while they took justice into their own hands. I'd been reporting for nine months, and I was feeling deflated. Because nearly a year after Epstein killed himself in that jail cell, Ghislaine was still on the run. Where is Jeffrey Epstein's former girlfriend? She's vanished. Where in the world was Ghislaine Maxwell? Each week, there were new rumors about Ghislaine's whereabouts. Someone thought they spotted her in Paris. There was a sketchy photo of her at an In-N-Out burger in LA. Was she in Israel or Brazil?
0: If I were to
1: take a guess, I would guess that she is in Russia.
2: But her true location proved to be a little more normal. Early this morning, Ghislaine Maxwell was arrested in Bradford, New Hampshire. A team of FBI officers raided a $1 million mansion, appropriately named Tucked Away. The real estate listing calls it. An amazing retreat for the nature lover who wants total privacy.
4: And more recently, we learned she had slithered away to a gorgeous property in New Hampshire, continuing to live a life of privilege, while her victims live with the trauma inflicted upon them years ago.
2: While traveling around the country reporting on Epstein's victims, I heard so many stories about Ghislaine. But she still remains a mystery to me. I mean, she had absolutely everything in the world, connections, money, power, but she allegedly ended up recruiting underage girls for a sex offender. Now, she sits in a Brooklyn jail cell awaiting trial. Then I started to hear stories about Ghislaine's family, a family steeped in power and drama, and at the head of it was her father, Robert Maxwell.
0: My mother's ideas were instilled in me. She told a relative many years ago, my son will be famous someday. I just feel it, and I know it.
2: A real life Logan Roy, a media tycoon worth millions, who came from nothing, ended up with everything and then died under mysterious circumstances in 1991.
1: Now back to tonight's main news, the disappearance of the publisher, Robert Maxwell. Within the last few minutes, rescue services have reported finding a body.
2: And if he was alive today, he might well be in the same place as his daughter, a jail cell.
4: One of Maxwell's biggest debts is the 400 million pounds or so missing from the mirror pension fund.
2: I realized, that to understand how Ghislaine has ended up where she is today and why she did what she did, we need to go deeper into her past, to her upbringing. So that's what this season of Power is all about. Going back to the beginning and discovering the man who put the Maxwell family on this crazy road, Robert Maxwell. I'm Tara Palmieri, and from something else, this is power. The Maxwells. Episode 1, Daddy Issues. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: Welcome to True Spies.
0: What is my secret? I will let you and your viewers know what it is.
2: Robert Maxwell was born into extreme poverty in Central Europe.
0: We didn't have enough to eat. I've only had three years primary education.
2: He was an Orthodox Jew who escaped the Holocaust. He was a war hero, a British member of parliament, and then he built a publishing empire. From scratch.
0: Today, our group is internationally recognized as one of the world's 10 leading global publishers.
2: As a newspaper tycoon with publications in London and New York, he was second only to his nemesis, Rupert Murdoch.
0: Play Win a Million in the Daily Mirror. I guarantee you will all get a fair and equal chance to play and win one of our millions.
2: There were the yachts, the private jets, and the oversized ego.
0: Call me back. I'm in the plane.
2: He had the ear of world leaders.
0: He said, do you
4: think Mr. Gorbachev would invade anywhere without calling me first?
2: When he died, he was buried in the Mount of Olives in Israel. Holy ground, usually reserved for prophets, rabbis, and great statesmen. And maybe he was a great statesman. To some people. But certainly not to everyone.
0: Colorful. Larger than life. (laughs) I.e., Complete bastard! Jesus, now that's unwelcome visitor. Fuck off.
2: He was a giant of a man with an insatiable appetite for the finer things in life. He used to wipe his bottom on, on the hand towels. He never used to use toilet paper. He allegedly worked with the world's biggest intelligence agencies.
4: Have you ever had any dealings with the Israeli intelligence service? Certainly not. It's outrageous.
2: And then there was the small matter of financial corruption.
4: He had taken money from his employees' future, robbed their future.
2: A revelation that really only emerged after his death. And nearly 30 years later, we're still trying to make sense of how he died.
1: The millionaire publisher of the Daily Mirror, Robert Maxwell, has been reported missing from his motor yacht off the Canary Islands. Well, we've just heard from the Air Sea Rescue Center at Madrid that... A body has been found.
2: Robert Maxwell was married to a French woman named Elizabeth, but everyone called her Betty. Over 15 years, she gave birth to nine children. Seven of them are still alive. One of the daughters died of leukemia at the age of three. The eldest boy was in a horrific car accident when he was 15 and remained in a coma until his death in 1968. By a weird twist of fate, the accident took place just two days after Ghislaine was born, on Christmas Day 1961. As the youngest, Ghislaine quickly became daddy's little girl. I saw, witnessed
3: quite a few things, because I was like, he just ignored me. I was just there, like, like, you know, just there, and I was invisible.
2: That's Carol Bergoli. She worked as a secretary at Maxwell's central London headquarters, and she saw some of the private moments most people didn't get to see. Robert was hoovering up companies around the globe, while Ghislaine was living it up as a socialite in her 20s. He was on loudspeaker.
3: The receptionist said, Ghislaine, Mr. Maxwell, and he picked up the phone, and he just said, meow. And she went, meow, meow, and he went, meow. And it went on like that for about a minute, I think. (laughs) And then I think he said something like, what are you doing? And she says, nothing. Just a nothing call, really, just a a meowing call, yeah.
4: Of all the children, he was the most indulgent with Ghislaine, the youngest.
2: That's Roy Greenslade. He's one of Robert Maxwell's biographers. And he edited Robert Maxwell's Daily Mirror, one of the UK's biggest-selling tabloid papers. We're going to hear a lot more from him over the series.
4: He allowed her a license, I think, he'd not given to the others. And she was very clever with him. She had learned to deal with him, to giggle, to make him smile, to indulge him, to smother him with kisses, uh, and to be very attentive.
2: When she wasn't meowing on the phone, Delane was a pretty regular fixture in the office. It was the late 80s. She was in her 20s and had recently graduated from the University of Oxford.
3: She'd swan into the office occasionally she'd perch herself on the edge of my of my desk with her long, lovely legs, swinging them. And she'd say to me, got any fags, Carol? That's cigarettes. I'd say, yeah, help yourself. She'd take the packet and
2: would never give it back to me. Robert Maxwell wasn't exactly the easiest boss. And don't even think about slacking. Because he'd creep up behind me and say to me, what are you doing? You never knew what his next strange request would be. One day, he barged in and demanded a dictation in French.
3: And I said to him, I'm sorry, Mr. Maxwell, I I don't speak French.
2: Decades before Donald Trump hosted The Apprentice, Maxwell was notorious for his short temper and for impulsively ending people's careers. So he thumped the table, Maxwell,
3: and he said, I don't pay you to tell me what I can't do.
2: You tell me what I can do. He said, you're fired. But for Carol, this was an exciting place to work. And it wasn't just because of the champagne happy hour that the butler served every Friday. Maxwell owned half a stake in MTV Europe, and all sorts of people would come into the office. Once, he was negotiating to buy a soccer club, which was then owned by a famous pop star.
3: Elton John was wanting to sell it at the time. And his his um, manager was very difficult to deal with and wanted Maxwell to go to Elton John to sign the contract. And Maxwell doesn't go anywhere, you know, he just doesn't go anywhere to sign, they come to him. So there was this standoff.
2: Elton John's manager rang the office. He was furious. One of Carol's colleagues answered the phone. Mr. John
3: will not go anywhere to sign. You, Maxwell comes to him and blah, blah, blah. And she just said, cool as a cucumber, she said, well, do you have the right orifice to the phone? Because all I'm getting down this line is a lot of shit. And put the phone down. So then Elton John came in and signed the contract.
2: Being daddy's little girl set Ghislaine apart from her siblings. Her older brothers, Kevin and Ian, were already working hard within the Maxwell organization. Whereas Ghislaine was getting a different sort of reputation. I don't think she's ever worked, at what you call worked.
3: At one stage he did set her up in a business, a gift, gift business, um, Corporate gifts. So she she had a beautiful catalogue printed with all these very expensive corporate gifts.
2: Things like silver ballpoint pens and bottles of champagne. Carol remembers buying a huge silver diaper pin for a colleague's baby. It was engraved with the child's name.
3: And of course, you know, Maxwell would expect everyone he knew in business to to buy them off her, so she didn't have to go out and sell it. She just had to say whose daughter she was, and, and, it, and they sold themselves, I expect.
2: But it wasn't really working out for Ghislaine. It was clear to most people that Maxwell Corporate Gifts was an unprofitable vanity project, just something to keep Daddy's little girl occupied while her brothers, Kevin and Ian, were entrusted with running more important parts of the family business. There's a story in one of the many books written about Maxwell, this one by the late journalist Nicholas Davies, about a phone call Ghislaine made to her father. There was no meowing this time. Ghislaine was visiting New York and was thinking of dropping in on Donald Trump to sell him some of her corporate gifts. She asked her father if he would phone Trump to set up a meeting, as they were friends. But Maxwell said, Have you got your bum in your head? Why the fuck would Donald Trump want to waste his time seeing you with your crappy gifts when he has a multi-million dollar business to run? Roy Greenslade remembers a party he attended when he was editor of The Mirror. It was at Headington Hill House, the mansion where the Maxwell family lived in Oxford.
4: I saw them around in the office, but to see them Still in his presence, all of them together, always looking, in a sense, to their mother for some form of protection or whatever. I think then one realized how monstrous he could be in terms of his own children.
2: Here's an example. In Roy's book about Maxwell, he writes about how mealtimes were particularly fraught. Robert, Betty, and the seven kids would sit around this enormous table in their lavish mansion every Sunday for a classic British Sunday lunch. Then, Maxwell would grill each child in turn to make sure they were learning enough at school. Once, he reduced Ghislaine to tears because she failed to define the word theocracy. And
4: that really, I think, made their lives a complete misery, completely unlike I think, um, many other children. It was an abuse of kind, psychological abuse.
2: This kind of abuse wasn't confined to just their childhood. Despite Ghislaine's status as daddy's little girl, Robert once had the locks changed on his personal kitchen because he found out that Ghislaine had popped in for a snack. This controlling behavior seems especially ruthless when you learn that Ghislaine was anorexic as a child. Maxwell needed to dominate everyone, whether it was his staff or his family. While Maxwell could treat his favorite daughter with absolute disdain, on the other hand, his affection for her could be effusive. Once Roy, then the editor of the Daily Mirror, was in a meeting with Maxwell in his 10th floor drawing room. They were mid-conversation when Ghislaine sheepishly interrupted them. She was summoned because Maxwell had learned that she was practicing dangerous stunts on one of her many vacations. And she
4: had had an accident. And he told her, why do I have to hear this from Signor Agnelli and not from my own daughter? You're always doing foolish things. This referred to her jumping out of a helicopter with water skis on or something. I mean, she was fairly uh, bold and uh, uh, daring.
2: That's right, jumping out of a helicopter on water skis. But this time, Ghislaine pushed back. She said she wasn't fooling around, and it wasn't dangerous. But Maxwell continued to tell her off in front of Roy, who sensed Maxwell was enjoying himself.
4: There was something about the dropping of the Agnelli name that made a difference. Here was one of uh, Italy's richest families, and she was connected to it, and I think he rather liked that.
2: Roy didn't really know what to say. So after Ghislaine left the room, he shook his head and laughed. Maxwell said,
4: Well, yes, in that way, she's rather like me.
2: There was an intensity to Maxwell's love for Ghislaine. Once he told a journalist, My family won't inherit anything. The only ones who deserve anything are my youngest, Ghislaine and Kevin. I adore both of them. Kevin is so much like me, and Ghislaine is a friend. Robert walked a fine line in his relationship with Ghislaine. Adoring and supporting her but also controlling and tormenting her. Was there something about this friendship that would push Ghislaine over the edge after his death?
1: Well, we've just heard from the Air Sea Rescue Center at Madrid that a body has been found.
2: Coming up, an acquaintance who met Ghislaine in New York immediately after Maxwell's death.
1: Then she says, this is Ghislaine, do you know her? And I realize, oh yeah, I met this bitch once before (laughs) and I didn't like her.
2: Christina Oxenberg lives in Serbia these days. If you follow the lives of the Serbian royal family, you might have heard of her mother, Princess Elizabeth of Yugoslavia. In the UK, Prince Andrew is her cousin. Christina's a New Yorker. She knows the city Ghislaine Maxwell fled to, inside out.
1: I arrived in New York in 1980. I've spent a lot of years doing a lot of different jobs. My resume is like a joke. It's like 95 pages of lowly office jobs and you know, benevolent friends who've allowed me to ruin their
2: life for six
1: months.
2: (laughs) In those early years, she worked as a director of a music video. She worked in PR. She was a researcher for writers. You know, paying my rent and doing my thing. Christina doesn't have many souvenirs from her old life in America. She lost everything in a hurricane a few years ago. But there's one photograph she found again recently, a photograph she didn't lose from back when she was living in New York. It's a picture of Ghislaine Maxwell. It was taken in the restaurant on the top floor of Barney's department store on 7th Avenue. The spot was later known as Fred's, where famous people go to eat overpriced salads. On that day in the early 90s, Christina spotted a friend from afar, so she crossed the busy room. I went
1: to say hello to my friend.
2: The person her friend was having lunch with looked familiar. Then
1: she says, this is Gilandi. do you know her? And I realized, oh yeah, I met this bitch once before
2: and I didn't like her. So what happened that first time when Christina met her? It's,
1: it's very detailed, the first exchange. So if you really want me to go plowing through it, I will, but if I don't have to... Because I'm already exhausted. I'm an old bag with a horrible, I'll be dead in six months by the time your story comes out.
2: Okay, here's what happened. So
1: lamb, the very first time I meet her, it's at a wedding. Don't bother asking questions because I'm not going to say more than what I'm saying. Like whose wedding is it? <laughs> like, never mind that. I meet her at a wedding in America.
2: In Virginia, to be precise. The year was 1990.
1: I am with my husband, who is English. We've been married at that point for long enough for me to know I'm planning on getting a divorce soon.
2: The wedding was full of Americans. Most of them were Christina's friends. There was one British guy there. Who
1: I know from childhood, because I did grow up in England, hence the messy accent. But he had brought as his date, as his plus one,
2: Gillan Maxwell. This is 1990, so Robert Maxwell is still alive, and Ghislaine was Daddy's little girl. It's easy to imagine how she must have looked. She was probably wearing a big hat, maybe even gloves. So
1: she strolled across, kissed, "Kiss, to the hut to my husband, Damien Elwes. E L W E S for sugar. <laughs> So, she strolls over to say hello to Damien, her friend from, you know, from England. They hug, they're thrilled to see each other. Damien does not bother to introduce me, which was his way. She says, what is this pointing at
2: me with her chin? What an introduction. Christina laughed awkwardly and kept quiet.
1: I don't care. I'm not going to be offended. But it's not how I would say hello.
2: The husband and Ghislaine went on talking for a few minutes, totally ignoring Christina. And then she loops her arm through
1: his, linking their arms. And she she strolls him away into the crowd.
2: Who on earth was this woman with so much confidence? That's pretty ballsy to swoop in and pull away someone's husband. It almost sounds like something her father... Robert Maxwell would have done, to show who's boss, to assert his dominance. You know, she was trying
1: to set the scene that she was in charge and that whoever I was, she had more dibs on Damien than me. But I was laughing because I was like, keep him, bitch.
2: Okay, let's go back to that New York restaurant encounter a year or two later. By now, Christina and her husband had separated while Christina hadn't forgotten that exchange at the wedding, something had happened to Ghislaine since then. Something that had changed her life. Months earlier, Robert Maxwell had died in the most dramatic way. His death and its fallout was such a massive story that it actually made Christina feel something for Ghislaine. Pity.
1: The fact that her father had died made me um, put, lay down my sword um, put aside any initial thoughts I had had of her when I first met her, um, and, and just to be polite and also give her a second chance because maybe that's life altering, you know. Maybe she'll be nice now. Uh, so I'm, I, I guess, I offer my condolences, and she asks me for my phone number, and she says, "Please, you know, I'm new in town. This is obviously in New York City," and. Um, Can't we be friends?
2: What did Ghislaine see in Christina? She misread me. She saw in me
1: someone, she understood uh, my lineage. She decided erroneously from the beginning that I was someone she could play with, that I was someone she could lure in.
2: Christina gave her her number and took a photograph of Ghislaine, the one she found again recently. In it, Ghislaine is smiling at the camera She's wearing a white sweater. On the surface, she seems happy. But looking at it now, it it feels different. It's as if the ghost of Robert Maxwell is hanging over Ghislaine. And the next time Christina met Ghislaine, she'd begin to see the effect it had on her.
1: hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.
2: When Christina Oxenberg met Ghislaine, she didn't think she'd end up seeing her again so soon. Sure, Ghislaine took down her phone number for her address book, but she was surprised to get an invite for tea at Ghislaine's apartment on the Upper East Side. She was buzzed in and entered a square room with cream walls, a high ceiling, and massive windows. There was a sprawling unmade bed. Christina describes it as a Victorian boudoir chic. I think
1: there were only three other girls there. They were English, they were thin. I didn't know any of them, but it was obviously they were toffs from their accents, from their scarves around their necks, you know, their, their swish little tight Sloan streets clothing.
2: Christina wasn't giving much thought to the other posh guests because Ghislaine was commanding all the attention. She's weird. She's
1: strange. She's throwing her dog across the room.
2: Wait, throwing her dog around? Christina says that Ghislaine had a baby Yorkshire Terrier called Max. She says she threw him around the room more than once, making him quiver. Another thing, Ghislaine was only wearing her underwear.
1: I know you want to know what it looks like, so I'm just going to tell you. It was white and frilly and it wasn't a thong, thank God. Um, And she didn't look bad. She didn't look terrible. I mean, I wasn't put off, but I was surprised. And um, it was a hot day, I'll give her that.
2: Who hosts a tea party in their underwear? What Ghislaine was saying was weird, too. I am broke, she said
1: it more than once. I, I didn't question it. I've been broke most of my life. You know, there have been ups and downs. And sometimes it's been $7 in the bank. And I have asked for sandwiches from friends. It's happened. So when she said she was broke, I took it literally.
2: I find it hard to believe that Ghislaine Maxwell was as broke as she claimed to be. Maybe it's all relative. I'm sure it wasn't easy accepting a more modest life, one that didn't come with yachts, private planes, and helicopters.
1: And I just didn't really read the signs that she was sitting in rather a pretty apartment that you can't have if you're broke. It was a studio, which means literally one single room. But it was pretty, and it was in the best part of town. You can't do that if you're broke.
2: I've heard about this place that Ghislaine moved into when she first arrived in New York. Christina thinks it was an elaborate theatrical display intended to hide the obvious truth.
1: She was just mourning her dad. Father had died. That was really the whole, that was the whole story. But she was, she kept saying she was broke.
2: Christina felt uncomfortable and left the party early. She didn't really want to become Ghislaine's New York pal. We were never friends.
1: We had occasional run-ins. And in those run-ins, she revealed herself.
2: Christina could see the signs then that we know for certain now. Ghislaine Maxwell wasn't truly broke. There were reports that her father left her a trust fund with an allowance of $100,000 a year. Maybe that isn't enough to live a fabulous life in Manhattan like the one she lived in London as a socialite, but she certainly wasn't broke. But maybe when she said she was broke, what she really meant was that she was broken. When Christina looks back on those early meetings, after everything that's happened, she sees it as kind of a turning point in Ghislaine's life.
1: With her father's death, she becomes either somebody else that she she would never have become, or she becomes who she truly is. Had her father been alive, could this ever have happened to her life? Would she have slid down that pole of crime where she is now?
2: When Robert Maxwell died in 1991, he left behind a legacy that was almost as big as his ego. But maybe the biggest mark he left on the world was his daughter, Ghislaine. Of course, the crimes Ghislaine is alleged to have committed were of her own volition. She was an adult, her father was dead. We can't really blame Robert Maxwell for that. But when it came to her pursuit and abuse of power, could it be something she learned from her father? Over the next six episodes, we're gonna tell you the story of Robert Maxwell. And maybe then we can make more sense of where Ghislaine has ended up. We'll hear about his ascent to become a newspaper tycoon his high-wire business deals, and a final plunge into disaster. Next time on Power, The Maxwells, the moment when he met his end.
4: Robert Maxwell's gone missing over the stern of his yacht, the Lady Jelaine, near Tenerife.
2: We go back to November 1991, when Robert Maxwell's 300-pound body hit the water. What happened to him?
0: I've pulled many, many
4: bodies from the sea, and I can tell you that this one did not drown.
2: We speak to the people who were with Ghislaine in the Canary Islands in the immediate aftermath.
4: And that was when I heard her telling the the crew to um, shred all the faxes and any documents.
2: Power of the Maxwells is written and presented by me, Tara Palmieri. Producers are Paul Smith and Grant Irving. Story editor is Dasha Lisitsina. Our executive producer is Tom Koenig. Original music by Nolan Schneider. Engineering and scoring by Spoke Media and NPAL Audio. Our visual designers are Emma Lansdowne and Alex Elder. Special thanks to Ella McLeod, Joe Sykes, Russell Finch, Peggy Sutton, Steve Ackerman, and Mark Rivers.